You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. At the close of Blade Runner, Roy Batty talks of the things that he's seen and that all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. However, today, Carlo, you've shared with us the potential for the sensing city, a city that never forgets, and where people can harness and hack data to create more responsive, better cities for living. Carlo Ruddy, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, can you tell us a bit about cities that speak to us? Can you tell me what you mean by the sensing city? Yeah, well, what's happening in cities today is quite interesting. It's about all those technologies that change our lives over the past 10, 20 years. Think about digitization and so on that are entering physical space. If you want, you could say that the Internet is becoming Internet of Things and as such is allowing us to change the way we understand, design and ultimately live in cities. Uh, so I guess it'd be, it'd be really interesting to hear about what your, what are your three favorite cities and, and what do you mm. love about them? And are they cities that have these Internet of Things or are they just purely just great places to be? Look, uh, I think, you know, I don't think you can, uh, um, <clears throat> you can say, you know, this is my favorite city. I think there are cities all over the world that I experiment in different ways. The cities that have, uh, uh, you know, some things I love, uh, but there are different dimensions. I think, you know, the city is like a microcosm. It's like a universe. And, um, and so it's about, again, experimentation with new technologies. It's taking different forms. In Singapore, there's a lot of experimentation about mobility. In Copenhagen, about sustainability. In Boston, about citizen participation. In Milan, about bringing green in nature back to the city. So those are different dimensions. So I think what's important today is really to, to bring those, those different experiments together so the cities can learn from each other. Now, you and your teams have been the architects of design solutions really ahead of their time, like the Copenhagen Wheel, a bike designed to collect data. Mm-hmm. Now, we live in cities with Uber and now dockless bikes. Did you ever anticipate this when you were working on the Copenhagen Wheel? Uh, it's very interesting, actually, when we, we, with the Copenhagen Wheel started at MIT, we had a class, and out of the class, it was back in 2008, I believe, uh, so now 10 years ago, out of the class, we came up with a few ideas. You know, one idea was the Copenhagen Wheel that became a startup called Super Protestant, that's selling it and, you know, doing, working a lot on micromobility. But out of the same class, there were two additional ideas. And one was, at the time, a bike, a bike sharing system without docks, uh, without having to, to, to lock the bike. And, um, and another one was like a social network for bikers. Uh, for cyclists and uh, you know something that's very similar to what later a few years later became Strava so it's interesting many ideas are often in the air and I'm not saying you know we, we we were the first one probably other people probably had the same ideas so the important thing is then uh, is then execution is you know how you take an idea you run with it and then uh, that idea can then transform cities now you and your team at the Sensible City Lab have worked on a number of projects here in Australia. One's called City Scanner and also you've got a partnership with the state of Victoria looking at autonomous vehicle technologies and also livability. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about these projects. Sure. Um, well, with the state of Victoria has been very interesting. As you know, Melbourne is, uh, is growing and there's a big development called Fisherman's Bend. And, uh, and one of the questions we were asked to look at uh, with, the, with the government uh, was about mobility. And as we all know, the city of the 20th century was built around the car. And today, mobility is changing a lot. It's about self-driving cars. It's also about new mobility systems. It's about micro-mobility, some of the things you mentioned before. Uh, I just landed in Australia now, and so a few of the Lime scooters here and there and a lot of other kind of micro-mobility systems. And so what we've been doing is, uh, is working with the students to think about, you know, well, how can we build a neighborhood uh, that has new mobility systems at its core? 
And there's been quite a int few interesting things. And one, one of my favorite, for instance, is, uh, you know, Melbourne, something very typical and unique in Melbourne are all the tramways. And so actually, well, tramways could be uh, some of the first places for experimenting self-driving. So can you think about smaller tramways and, uh, you know, that use existing network, you extend the network to Fisherman's Bend, and then you, you the, the good thing is that when you got self-driving cars, you can do mobility on demand. Self-driving cars, or self-driving tramways. So basically you can go point to point and have smaller pods uh, with higher frequency and it could be a very interesting experiment that uh, could position Melbourne as uh, the first city in the world to try it. So do you think this might mean that we need almost like sort of different lanes or additional lanes? You know, we're going to have different kinds of mobility. We've got cars, we've got mm -hmm. these um, mobility devices that help us move around and also pedestrian. You know, do you think we're going to have to think differently about how we set out or lay out the city to support this kind of this new form of mobility? Well, I think what if you, quite a few things will change in the future. And let me give you one example is about, you know, today a car in the United States you use an average 5% of the time. In 95% of the time, not only it's not used, but actually it uses valuable space in our cities. It's parked somewhere. And if you, got, uh, if you move to self-driving cars, then you know, we don't need to keep them parked. The car can give us a lift in the morning when you go to our office, and then can give us a lift to somebody else in our family or to anybody else in the city. So we can create a new hybrid system in between public and private. And, uh, and one of the consequences could be much less parking spaces needed. So that means, again, changing the standards that, as planners, we use in our cities. Just very simple example. The other thing, you know, we've actually, on the other hand, we, we might need less parking spaces, but we might need, you know, much more pick-up and drop-off places. Again, if we just want to, to Uber from here to there so in a, with autonomous cars, we need to get into the car and get off the car. So I think that, again, is, uh, is going to change the way we design the curb and the way we design our cities. Now, here in Australia, there's a lot of discussion around the arrival of 5G. What does 5G mean for the built environment? And do urban designers and wireless engineers need to gather around a new kind of city planning? Well, um, I... I think we need to look at things that are evolutionary and things that are revolutionary. So some some things have been revolutionary. Think about you know the, the smartphone. You know we wouldn't have anything such as Uber or you know online shopping and many other things. Uh, also navigation in cities the way we have it without you know something like the, the first iPhone and then all of the smartphones that follow. Uh, but when you go from 4G to 5G, just um, I would say is more like evolutionary. Now of course you can do a few more things. It will be very important in the future with uh, autonomous mobility because cars can be connected and you have information being exchanged with very little latency so you can make our roads safer and so on. But again, I don't see 5G as a revolution, but it's a very interesting evolution of the present system. At the same time, I need to tell you, I enjoyed it very much because uh, um, I've been to Australia many times over the past 10 years and uh, you know I've been living here for a little bit as well and, and connectivity has always been an issue. So I really enjoy this kind of faster data download and upload ability we have today. Oh, I'm looking forward to even more of that. Now, I'd love to explore this idea of data and cities a bit more, and I'm really interested in the ethics of how we manage data. New city technologies have data at their core, and we're at the point where data is almost more valuable than the actual utility to humans. So I'm thinking like the interactions or the iterations of dockless bikes, whereby actually the, the data associated with the dockless bike is almost deemed more valuable than the bike itself. And I'm curious around how we look at this in a more sort of in an equitable way. What does it mean for social equity? Like, for example, if the data of a more affluent city dweller is deemed to be more desirable than, say, someone who's more vulnerable and they might be required to trade more ad time or reduce privacy as they interact with the city in a digital city. 
Do we need to put in place rules? And, and what does what does that actually look like? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. Now, now the, the problem we have today is that if you if you think about what we carry in our pockets, in our smartphones, then since we both of us woke up this morning, I think our smartphones probably record a few thousand data points about us, about where we were with very good accuracy, what we were doing, if we were cycling. Uh, walking, you know, in a car, in a bus, in a tr- on a train, uh, about you know the shops we visited, about the things we browsed online. So, so all this information today is being collected by whoever, whoever has the operating system uh, of our phone, and, and more and more information is being collected in our homes. Think about you know what uh, when you got a uh, an Amazon Alexa, then you know what it does. It, it actually records every every instruction you give, and it knows every, about everything that's going on in the house. When you're home, when you're not home, when you're turning on the lights, probably when you're cooking and doing many other activities at home. Uh, so, so the problem for me is that this digital copy of our lives is something that only a few big companies in big states have access to. And they know everything about us, and we know very little about them. And I think I'm mostly concerned about this asymmetry, and that's something we should uh, all be, be aware of and try to change. In the MIT, we organized a couple of times a big uh, forum, we called it uh, uh, Engaging Data Forum, where we had uh, privacy advocates, uh, you know, the, the, the US administration, big companies that produce a, lot of amount, a large amount of data, academics and so on. And uh, really, um, in order to talk about this, because this asymmetry, to me, is a big challenge today, and the society we're going to build tomorrow will depend on the decisions we make today in terms of privacy. Mm, it's really interesting. And I know your work explores social empowerment. And I guess I'd love to understand from you, how do we make sure that the smart city works for and empowers its citizens? And how do we use technology mm. to reduce inequality and improve citizen agency for, for better living? Yeah, you know, uh, it, technology is neither good nor bad, but mm. also it's not neutral. And, and the important thing is really how we want to use the technology. And uh, I would say technology today gives us a lot of new opportunities. As we mentioned before about, about mobility, you know, today we can use the infrastructure we have better. If it is the car infrastructure, the road infrastructure, if it is about, you know, the amount of built space we have in our cities, when you think about co-living, co-working, we can use it much better in a more efficient way. But, you know, but it doesn't mean that that will happen. Uh, for instance, with self-driving cars, we might end up even with cities with uh, uh, more cars than what we have today. So the very important thing th- there is is really about policies, the policies we put in place. And certainly uh, governments at all levels, you know, local governments and national governments need to take action to make sure that we use this technology to promote better quality of life and citizen empowerment. The, pos- the potential is there, but it's up to us to, to realise it. Now, you might be aware that there's a debate going on in Australia about city density, and there's a view that our cities are are not coping, um, that we don't have enough infrastructure to support the populations that are growing in our cities. And others argue, though, that our cities need to be dense, even more dense, to be more efficient and vibrant. Um, And I often think um, about car share, that a certain kind of density is required for it to work. For cities to best leverage data solutions, how dense do they need to be? Well, first of all, let, let me, I, mean, I mean, the issue of density um, is something people sometimes, where well, there's a lot of misunderstandings sometimes. For instance, for instance, let me ask you a question. And, you know, you, you've been to New York, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been to Barcelona. Yes. Uh, which city is denser? I would say Barcelona is. 
You say Barcelona, and you know because when one asks this question, you know that the answer <laughs> is opposite to what you would think it is. But most people would say it is New York. You know, and the reason that both of them are more or less the same density, but Barcelona uses space in a much mm. more efficient way because it's made of, made of courtyards, while if you think about New York, it's made of towers, pavilions, you know, uh, small isolated towers, and that's a much less effective way to use the ground. And actually this was studied and, uh, and analyzed in detail by two scholars at Cambridge University in the 1970s called Leslie Martin and Lionel March, uh, really looked at this and quantified this. But it, the result of that is if you're in Barcelona, you only see something like you know, six, seven, eight stories around yourself. And then it's, it looks like a very you know, human city, not very tall buildings and so on. And still the density is similar to the density you got in Manhattan. We look at a lot of towers that are hundreds of meter high. And so I think the issue of density is not what we perceive as dense often, and I think it's very important to say. And for that reason, I think that density usually, if we manage to, 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 to get density, I would say good density, mm. uh, good density can be very good for cities. And actually, a good friend of mine is uh, Rob Adams, who's been the, uh, the chief architect of the city of Melbourne for a long time. And uh, Rob, I think, I believe, moved to Melbourne from South Africa, really to, to with the first plan to revitalize the CBD in Melbourne. And all of his work, it was based on, uh, you know, scheduling better uh, in the CBD and allowing people to use real estate in a more efficient, in a better way, is really what made Melbourne such a vibrant city that's always in the top few cities worldwide for quality of life. And so I think, you know, good density could be a great asset for cities, can help us live more sustainable, but also in a more sociable way. It's more human friction, and human friction is what cities are about. And how does that play into then uh, how we use data in our cities? Does density, is density important or how important is density for it? Oh, you're right. You know, the second part of the question was about, um, <clears throat> about how we use data. And um, uh, I would say that, you know, um, more than that in, in, in the city, I think it's really about our ability to share. And clearly, the denser the city, the more we can share. It's easy to develop something like, you know, Uber pool in a dense city than if you are outside in the countryside, simply because you've got less density. And so there's less demand and you can share in a less effective way. So I think, you know, if you think about cities since they emerged over 10,000 years ago, they, they, they've been amazing, this kind of amazing invention of humanity, really to help us share things, share idea, share goods at the market, share chromosomes among each other. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that very nature of city, cities is related to density. So certainly density helps us to share better, especially today when digital allows a new economy, the sharing economy, to emerge. Now, we're seeing a proliferation of products and services here in Australia um, that are tapping into urban data to shape our cities. And we've seen Neighbourlytics, um, which is a great tool that's been co-created by one of our Westpac scholars, Lucinda Hartley, to a company called Kinesis, um, a Committee for Sydney member, mapping and predicting the eco-footprint of the city for better civic decision-making, to a tool called Ask Izzy, which is an app designed to help people experiencing homelessness to tap into nearby support. I'm curious, what city platforms are you currently excited by? No, I... You know, I, I've heard about some of, some, some mm. of the apps and the platforms you mentioned. You know, I don't know, don't know them that well. But I, I believe that the, the time we're in today is very similar to, to, you know, what humanity experienced probably 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, it was about digitization. It's about basically all of the, the, the digital boom. 1995 is when uh, 
Nicholas Negroponte, my colleague at MIT, wrote a book that was very influential at the time called Bean Digital. And so at the time, there was a lot of experimentation with different platforms, you know, the, with different uh, new systems. And probably 99% of them died, but actually that 1% that remained changed the world. And those are some of the, the, the household names we know today, you know, Google and the Amazon and so on, all were born more or less at the time, uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and um, I think today uh, we're at a similar point. And I think we need to see a lot of innovation in cities, a lot of experiments. We know that a lot of these things will, uh, will probably fail, uh, but then some of them will emerge as the platforms for tomorrow. And I think what we need to do, both as citizens, engaged citizens, but also as uh, you know, people uh, dealing with the design of the city, you know, researchers and also uh, politicians, what we need to do is, is promote this kind of sandbox you know, so we can try, try out as many things as possible so that the best ones then will, uh, will, will survive and change our lives in our cities. Now, you talk about the idea of future craft, which is about influencing the city in a, in a, you know, talk, talking about the future of the city in a positive way and um, taking the approach of provocations and tangible demonstrations. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about one of those recent provocations or um, ideas or programs and your intent for shaping the city. Yeah, let me tell you first a little bit more about Futurecraft. You know, the, uh, our starting point is that we cannot predict the future. Um, everybody could try to predict the future, you know. I mean, you can. the only way you can predict the future is out of luck. But basically, if you look at, you know, the Boston Globe, for instance, the, the, the newspaper in Boston, a city where I spend most of the time today, uh, the 1st of December 1900 did a spread of two pages of how life would have been in the year 2000. And if you go and look at that kind of that spread, they had imagined uh, moving sidewalks, they imagined like blimps in the sky, uh, a lot of other things, nothing materialized, and they missed all the important things. Clearly, they couldn't imagine the internet or Uber or Amazon changing deliveries. So, so the bottom line is that you know the future is impossible to predict, and one of the reasons is that also the future is not written in stone. The future is something we will build together. You know, and, and some of the decisions we make today will affect how we will live tomorrow. So the important thing is really not trying to predict, but trying to experiment with the present. And our idea of future craft or future crafting is, uh, is really how we can, as designers, as researchers, try to explore different transformations of the present and then share this information, start a conversation, and let citizens decide where we want to go. And, and for instance, I'll, um, uh, I'll share with you a little anecdote. I could share many projects we, we've been doing, but for instance, we, a few years ago, we, we took data that was made accessible by Mike Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, um, about mobility in New York City, taxi data in New York City. And we started analyzing it, and then we asked the question, how many trips could be shared by people in New York? And we realized that that number was very, very high. You know, you could take everybody to the destination when they need to be there, give or take a couple of minutes, uh, with 40% less vehicles than what we have today. And so we did that, and then we published it, and there was a discussion, there were a few reviews in, in newspapers, the New York Times wrote an article about it, uh, and then Uber reached out, and, um, and actually, then we started a collaboration with Uber, and as you know, Uber Pool does exactly that. Allows to people, you know, at the time, it hadn't started when we, when we, when we started working on, on, on this idea of sharing trips, but allows to people going more or less in the same direction to share mobility and, uh, and you know, remove cars from the road and, uh, and reduce congestion, pollution, and, uh, and energy consumption. So that's a very simple example, you know, I could give you many others, of how basically uh, looking at the city, looking at data, 
and, and looking at how we can imagine different transformations of the city, in this case, about sharing mobility, could then be a powerful way to start a conversation about, yes, you know, how city could transform. Now, city form often reflects the decisions that are being made by those who've lived there for, for long periods of time around the laying down of centralised infrastructure and that's been overlaid by built form. And you've talked a bit about New York and Barcelona as examples there. Now, the centralised infrastructure helps create an order, whether it's the road pattern or the hierarchical arrangement of sewer pipes or lines of telegraph and power, po power poles. Um, last year I travelled to Africa and I was actually blown away by the leapfrogging to decentralised solutions straight to car or van share or decentralised renewables or even payment systems like M-Pesa. It seems to me that data has the potential to further drive decentralised urban infrastructure. Will the shape of these cities change? Well, you know, in cities you, we've always seen a tension between centralised and decentralised. And again, you know, if you think about a city, uh, you're right. You know, you, there's a few things you know, that you lay down at the beginning. If you think about the Roman city, Romans, you know, when they started a city, would actually uh, draw two axes on the ground. One was called Cardus, one was called Decumanus, and they would put parcel and then people would develop in each of the parcel and you, know, you would build the city. So it's always a tension between this kind of top down and bottom up. Now the good things and the good news I believe is that today digital technologies allow us to empower people more and so we can actually uh, look at bottom up, bottom up dynamics in a, in a better way. And we had lost some of them in the 20th century. We've lost a lot of participation, a lot of citizen participation. You know, one of the great advocates for participation in the 20th century was uh, a professor called Christopher Alexander. Um, and Christopher Alexander, you know, uh, in one of his books about participation, he says, you know, well, participation is great, but you know, when you got over 10 people around the table, then it becomes a mess. And today with, uh, with digital, we can put not 10, but uh, 10,000 or 100,000 people around the virtual table and, uh, and get their feedback in different ways. So I think you know, today we can really uh, encourage and uh, strengthen this kind of bottom-up dynamics. But the city will always be a mix between some decisions made at the top, and, you know, again, the Cardos and the Comanos, the Romans would talk about, but also a lot of decisions be made in a bottom-up way. So in a way, you're talking about how we can hack the city. And you know, I think that's a double-edged idea in that at one end, you know, the city is potentially exposed to, to risks, even cyber criminals and creeping mechanisms to spy on, criminal, um, on citizens. But at the other end, um, we can enable people to harness data and social media to gain more urban agency and social connectivity. How do we get that balance right? How do we hack the city for good? Well, you know, when you think when you talk about hackers, there are two types of hackers. It's actually mm. black hat hackers, and you know, uh, those are the people who want to hack a system in order to destroy it or to provide harm. But also, you got white hat hackers. You know, those are ethical hackers. Those are the people who will try to to hack into a system in order to make it stronger, to see what the vulnerabilities are. And I think as designers, we should all be a little bit like white hat hackers. We should also look at how the city could, could develop into dystopia so that then we can develop antibodies and make sure we don't go there. So I think that's something we should all do is try and, again, future crafting is part of that. It's about you know, looking at different ways to transform the city, to transform the present. And we certainly want to talk about the things we like, about how, how we would love to, to, to have our cities evolve, but also about how we don't want our cities to evolve because by doing it, by starting a conversation, we can really make sure that we develop antibodies and we will not go there. So I think it's really more like a mentality. We should all try to look at the transformation of the present, future crafting, and, and look at it in order to make our cities safer, stronger, and, and really what we want. 
Now, your um, project Trash Track is a really great example of hacking the city for good. So I'm curious to know where that's up to now and perhaps you've heard about mm. war on waste here in Australia. Um, and I'm curious around how that kind of thinking could be extended up the supply chain to better understand provenance um, at a time when we're really increasingly concerned about food quality or modern slavery. Yeah, you know, you know, what we did with Trash Track, we started a few years ago and, you know, our idea initially was, uh, you know, today we know everything about how things are made. Uh, you know, if you look at that computer there on the table, uh, the tablet, you know, everything about it, every chip in it, you know, what was produced, had moved on the plant, how it became that machine. However, if years from now you stop using it, you sell it, at some point somebody will throw it away and then you know very little about it. You know, sometimes, you know, a lot of electronics, a lot of e-waste will end up where it shouldn't end up, you know, from the United States uh, shipped legally to Asia, from Europe to Africa. So our idea was, can we put little chips on waste and follow waste? And we had to design the chip. Uh, the initial chip was like a miniature cell phone. Uh, what it had to do was simply last for a long time, many months, and just record location and send back location to a central server. So we did a first experiment in Seattle, then we did some follow-up experiments. The last experiment we did over the past couple of years uh, has been about uh, uh, looking really at e-waste from the United States to all over the world. And we discovered some legal routes for e-waste uh, shipment and some also illegal routes. So that's, uh, that's really about how uh, data can help us to better understand, in this case, recycling. And then, you know, we can, uh, we can uh, use this in order to improve the systems, in order to recycle more, in order to close the loop, in order to live in a more circular economy. Now, going back to the other point you're making about, uh, you know, the, the other side of the supply chain, you know, can we also map it upstream? So here we're looking, you know, what happens to waste when we throw it away. But what about the rest? And the rest is a bit more difficult, um, but it's happening as well. It's a bit more difficult because you cannot simply put a tag. You can put a tag downstream, but you cannot trace upstream. But at the same time, it's happening naturally just because companies and producers are storing more and more data. You know, people who buy uh, products, they want to know where the product is coming from. As a matter of fact, uh, on Thursday this week, we, uh, our design office, um, CRA Calorati Sociati has done a project for the MLA that will be shown in, in Canberra. Uh, and actually, they were very interested in taking the technology we developed at the World Expo in Milan a couple of years ago that allows people interacting with products to know more about them. And so what you will see, you will see actually different products from Australia, from a bottle of wine to meat. And, uh, and by just interacting with it, you will learn a lot about, you know, about how, where this coming from, you know, all of the, the supply chain. And so I think that for us is the first step to make citizens aware in order to have then more and more data that can be, can be shared. Fantastic. So that is really, really exciting. Now, you must see so many urban trends come and go. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of the Gartner hype cycle, so I was really tickled to see you reference Smart Dust in your, your book. Um, and for listeners, Smart Dust is large-scale networks of wireless microsensors, and Smart Dust has been on and off the curve for Yonks. Um, it's been on and off the, uh, the Gartner hype cycle. So do you reckon Smart Dust is going to make it? Is it going to actually tra you know, translate into, into something that's quite real? And I guess really my question is more about how we manage the hype and the ideas and the possible products. You know, we see ideas crash and burn while others move up and down the hype curve to become more ubiquitous. Um, so as you future craft the city, where do you tend to play and how, what's your role in pushing things up that, that hype curve? Well, really what I, what I think is important for, for all of us you know, in research, in planning and so on is really to explore new ideas, to, to look at the consequences of those ideas and to share with people. And again, I think it's a very different attitude than architects in the 20th century. Architects in the 20th century thought they had the solution. I think today what we can do is actually uh, show some possibilities and let citizens uh, express their ideas. So the city 
of tomorrow is something we should build uh, all together. You know, in doing this in this kind of ecosystem, we'll see a lot of things that, uh, you know, will be proposed and will die, uh, and other things that actually will, will pick up. As we said before, you know, probably 99% of the things we're discussing, some of them will never materialize, but, you know, that 1% might change our lives and our cities. And so that applies also to, to the terms we're using. So for instance, uh, think about something like uh, Internet of Things uh, is, a, is a term that was uh, initially coined at MIT, I believe, in the early 2000s, and then people use it for a few years, and then nobody used it, and again, now everybody's using it. Uh, smart dust is uh, not the different. Uh, you know, again, it depends how how dusty you want to be. Now, somehow you can, if you look at a slightly big dust, like you know what we have in our pockets, our smartphones, you know, it's certainly a reality today. And, uh, and so I think you know, some of the terms have been changing and you know, some of them were in fashion, then out of fashion and so on. But that's part of the cycle. The important thing is that what's happening behind the terms is uh, something quite constant and moving and is something I would qualify as the convergence of digital and physical, is this convergence of two worlds which is uh, through data, and data help us to better understand our cities, and we know them better, we can then decide how to transform them. So at the close of Blade Runner, Roy Batty talks of the things that he's seen, and that all those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. However, Carlo, today you share with us the potential for the sensing city, a city that never forgets. Cities that can harness and hack data to create more responsive, better cities for living. Carlo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.